Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, I'm not doing episode numbers anymore, but I am doing issue numbers. And this episode's issue is Excalibur 44, Witless for the Prosecution, in which Brian's in bondage, Rachel dives through a portal into Megan, and Kurt is very soft. Excalibur number 44 was originally published in November 1991, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. And we're off on the Kurt cast era. We're going to be here for a while, but as long as Kurt's pairing said cast with the tiniest track shorts, you won't hear me complaining. But who am I? I am Dr. Anna Papard, writer of things about gender and sexuality in comics and pop culture, hardworking, unofficial PR manager of Kurt Wagner, and devotee of a particular scene in this issue involving the texture of Kurt's fur, which we will <laughs> be discussing in due course. I am joined, as always, by Mav, reacquaint our lovely listeners with your credentials. I was certain that you were just going to want to talk about in depth about Alistair meeting the tech net. I mean, that's what I, I was like, oh, this is clearly why Anna loves this issue. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Chris Maverick. You can call me Mav. Uh, I am still on vacation for another week as we record. So I'm, I'm living my best life. Uh, <laughs> I mean, now, by the time this episode comes out, yeah. <laughs> um, I have devolved into madness scurrying, trying to get ready for the semester. But as we record it, you know, it's before New Year's and I'm, I'm happy, I'm relaxed and podcast time travel is weird. <laughs> yeah, let's let's just live in the moment, shall we? Um, Andrew, remind the listeners of what all you get up to. Hey, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, project lead for the Claremont Run, and a man who sits ever ready to pedantically and exhaustively discuss Linda McQuillan, aka the best Captain Britain, the second <laughs> she happens to come up in even the most casual conversation she's got like four whole panels here and they're cold <laughs> i am andrew i reread the alan moore captain britain stuff yesterday preparing to talk about linda and i'm very 
very excited to talk about her also, so another reason to be excited about this issue. We are joined this week by a super scholar who is also a super big fan of Excalibur in Dr. Patrick Hamilton. Welcome, Patrick. Hello. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here and, and talk in Excalibur. We're so excited to have you. I'll tell the listeners a little bit about you. So Dr. Patrick Hamilton is a professor of English at Misericordia University with Alan W. Austin. He is also the co-author of All New, All Different, A History of Race and the American Superhero, published in 2019 by University of Texas Press. Um, All New, All Different received the John G. Coelty Award for Best Textbook slash Primer from the Pop Culture Association and the Midwest Popular Culture Association's Award for Best Book for Use in the Classroom. I have read it and can give it my ringing endorsement as well. Oh, thank you. So now, Patrick, I obviously want to make use of your expertise to talk about race and comics today. There's stuff in this issue that should facilitate that. But let's start, as as we often do, with your comics origin story. Are you a lifelong comics reader? And can you tell us a little bit about your journey from like fan to comic scholar? Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure my parents bought me my first comic uh, when I was four. So I think that does pretty yeah. much make me a, a <laughs> lifelong comics reader. I should um, I should be defining that term. I mean, how young do you have to be to be a lifelong comics reader? <laughs> yeah, I'm just you know I have my earliest issue I I had as a kid was Avengers 164 from 1977, and I would have been four, and I'm like I wouldn't have bought this, and why would my parents have bought this for me? But I'm very glad that they did because that began sort of my my love of comics and and Avengers in particular, which I sort of sporadically picked up here and there whenever I found an issue on the on the rack, and then it was when I was about. 13 to 14 that I remember my mom saying, did you know that there's a comic book store right by the high school? And I'm like, what's a comic book store? <laughs> and that, and that is from that moment on, I have been collecting comics continuously to this day. So that, that sort of, of, yeah, I, I'm definitely a, a lifelong comic fan. Have you been a fan of sort of diverse genres of comics or are you more of a superhero guy? I should be a uh, more fan of, of diverse genres, but I am a superhero guy through and through. And in particular, superhero teams are my bread and butter there there are very few very few solo titles uh that i follow and they tend to be quirky i think one of the first ones i did was quasar yes um, so and and did the complete run of quasar and have an irrational love of quasar um that means there are two people on this planet who have a complete run of quasar <laughs> yes yeah okay well, that's i also that, that's it there's nobody else yeah there's there's not yeah I, I think i had like two letters published in quasar and i'm like wow. that tells you something about like how many people nice. were writing in on a monthly basis so yeah so you know big superhero fans superhero teams are, are my bread and butter I, I pretty much have collected everything avengers from 1987 to now so um I'm, I'm kind of obsessive when it comes to avengers i understand completely uh what about your journey from fan to scholar i mean what sort of got you into comic scholarship and what made you want to write this fabulous book yeah, so a uh, couple things that were were pretty important influences. I did my uh, dissertation with Frederick Aldama uh, ah, when he was yep. at the University of Colorado and submitted a paper for the, I think it was the Mellis Conference at Ohio State that he held mm -hmm. many, many years ago on on Jessica Abel's La Perdita. And I remember when I said it to him and he contacted me, he was like, oh, you read comics? I read comics. And, and so that kind of got me started on that. And then the book very much just came out of Alan and Mai's conversation in, in the hallway. He grew up an X-Men fan. I grew up an Avengers fan. So we had lots to talk about. And we taught a T-9000 
team taught class on race and the history of race in comics, uh, both superhero and non-superhero for what I think we ran that for about 10 years every other year. And then that's what the book evolved out of. But it was all just out of our conversations. Alan would bring up, you know, the uh, Superman newspaper strip from World War II, where he went to the uh, Japanese concentration camps in the in the West. And it's a horrible storyline we, we talk about in the book. I brought up New Guardians, the 1980s DC series that was an attempt at multiculturalism that is really, really bad. And, and yep. you know, the, the class and the book both came out of those conversations. And, you know, we're, we're lucky that that at where we are, they'll they'll let us do pretty much whatever we want to do in terms of research. So, you know, comics just kind of evolved into what I do my research on at this point. Very cool. Well, I want to ask you a little bit more about the book, but I think maybe we'll come back to it because I want to kind of introduce the topic of race and representation and what we can get out of studying that after we do the issue summary. But can I ask you for right now about your specific Excalibur origin story? Because I know you were excited to come on the podcast and you already said that you're a fan of quirky superhero teams. So yes. is that kind of the draw for you with this title? Yeah, uh, Excalibur, I think might have been... Definitely was the first X-Men title that I collected from the first issue all the way through the original run. I remember being in a mall and they had both Sword is Drawn and the first issue on the rack. And I'm guessing it was largely because of the Davis art that attracted me to it, but picked those up. And, and yeah, I've always been kind of attracted to the quirkier mutant team. So Excalibur, Peter David's uh, X-Factor, Generation X, those those are kind of the teams that I've always gravitated to. So, But yeah, Excalibur was my first sort of, of mutant title, so holds a, a special place in my heart because of that. Well, I'll ask you the question that I sometimes ask people when I know that they're longtime Excalibur fans. Why is this series worth doing 126 hours of a podcast about? <laughs> Have we made a horrible mistake or is there a value to this series that sort of survives into the present day? Oh, there, there's absolutely a, a value. Uh, and, and yeah, no, it's not it's not a horrible mistake. Um, <laughs> I think I think one of the things I mean, Excalibur, particularly I remember when it was coming out was and I think you've talked about this on earlier episodes, it was distinct from the rest of the X-Men line being sort of of I remember it being kind of the the humorous title, whereas the rest were all very serious and, and dark, particularly the main title at this point. And it just yeah, it sort of had this kind of madcap zany feel to it that that particularly in, you know, the late eighties, early nineties when it's coming out, you know, we're very much in the post Watchmen, post Dark Knight era, mm -hmm. where everything is very grim and gritty and, and Excalibur is just not that. And so it, it, it's an antidote to a lot of what was, was going on at the time. Despite how much sort of darkness informs the series, like which we'll talk mm -hmm. about today a little bit because we got some flashbacks to, to Megan's origin and, of course, poor Linda's story as well. I'll let you talk about that a little bit, Andrew. Well, let's get into it. Let's do our issue summary and then I want to ask you a little bit more specifically about your work, Patrick. But we'll we'll get through that summary of this ultra-dense issue first and then <laughs> come back to some of those things. So I know we have lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod, but as always, let's start our road trip with a plot summary. Excalibur number 44, Witless for the Prosecution, opens on Otherworld in the headquarters of the Captain Britain Corps, where a bound and gagged Brian Braddock is being read a list of charges, foremost among which is breaking the morality code of his home dimension. Brian's defense attorney is Captain Britain of Earth 839, Linda McQuillian. The prosecutor is our old nemesis, Hauptman Angland. Meanwhile, back on Earth 616, Megan tells Rachel her backstory, and Rachel tries to help Megan uncover her tangled memories by entering her mind. She prepares herself for psychic defenses, but to her surprise, 
is there are none. Rachel almost loses herself in Megan, but just manages to escape. But the effort is not for naught. The experience triggers a memory for Megan of some old friends, the Scots family in London. Rachel and Megan fly off to find them. Elsewhere, Alistair Stewart arrives at the Excalibur Lighthouse, interrupting the tech nut in the middle of their daily lunch break brawl. He's there to invite Rachel to an archaeological dig in Ireland. Rachel being absent, Kitty invites herself in her stead. From there, we quickly cut base with Earth 148, or Earth, where Kailun and Princess Satine lead an army that's getting ever closer to Necrom's Citadel. Meanwhile, back in 616 London, Megan and Rachel reach the Scots' house. The Scots put them in touch with Madame Zelda, a former neighbor of Megan's who has become a fortune teller. While Megan talks to Zelda, Rachel has a testy run-in with Micromax after she follows a glowing dagger into an antique shop. We'll be picking up this storyline another time. Zelda tells Megan her parents have gone to France. Back at the lighthouse, Kurt greets Di Thomas and Miss Amelia Witherspoon, a clairvoyant who has helped Scotland Yard with previous investigations. She has predicted a number of recent crimes before they happened, but despite high-tech surveillance equipment, they haven't been able to catch the culprits. They want Excalibur's help. Kurt tries to explain that the team is elsewhere, and given his enormous leg cast, he's in no position to take the lead. Amelia suggests enlisting the TechNet to help. We'll be picking up that storyline later, too. Finally, back on Otherworld, Hauptman England displays evidence on his screen of Brian's crimes against the Captain Britain Corps, including joining Excalibur and becoming subordinate to someone other than Roma, disrupting the continuum on the cross-time caper, using the uniform of Captain Marshall, and finally, breaking Kurt's leg. Brian relieves his attorney as he believes the trial to be a sham. He's told this renders him guilty and gets attacked by the rest of the Corps. Dum-dum-dum. So, dense issue this week. After a whole issue basically confined to the lighthouse last week, we're jumping all over the place here. Um, so let's let's dive right in, starting with some first impressions. And guests privilege, Patrick, how are you feeling about this issue? Anything that really jumped out to you about this particular one upon rereading? Uh, it just reminds me how much the Captain Britain Corps is just awful. Um, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're just... I, 100%. Captain UK is the best, and, and you know your group is awful when you make Brian Braddock look good um <laughs> yep. you know that 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 he basically you know he is the second best one in that entire core at least in terms of this issue and and that's saying something considering how awful Brian can can be at times as you've talked about on the show previously so yeah I just, I'm just reminded how how much they are they they are terrible and still kind of remembering how much it how good it felt to have Alan Davis back on oh, um, art after after the very long slog between his his last contribution to the series which which in in my opinion was really what sort of hurt Excalibur in the long run like the title was doing really well and then just went off the rails and just even the even the stuff Claremont did just felt like a ton of fill-in issues after fill-in issues until we got to Alan Davis and I just like you know the the series had so much momentum and then just got derailed for so long so still kind of basking in it was like okay we're back to you know what Excalibur should be and and this issue has some some really great art from from Davis and Farmer you you know the the panel or the spade the page where Rachel goes into Megan's mind, yeah. and then the two pages of of Kylan the Barbarian uh, mm-hmm. are just are just gorgeous. And I I've always had a a soft spot for Kylan. He's probably my second favorite Excalibur character. For oh reasons my goodness! I, I don't understand. Aww. Yeah, I, I I love Kylan. Um, amazing. Yeah, I I I don't know why, but there's just something about him I always liked. So oh, he's very sympathize withable. I mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's just for so... these two pages of straight murder he does, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. it's really bad <laughs> people, <cute>. and <laughs> exactly, it's it's good murder for a couple. Oh yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm on board. I mean, you know, I guess we're not really going to talk about him much today, but you know, he will be important. He is very important to this show for reasons that we've not explained yet. But <laughs> yeah, and we're I not just... going to today. Yeah. Not today, but um, 
yeah, I just spent like the week writing an essay about like Wolverine and violence and the hand waviness about his murders. So I am sympathetic to that critique of <laughs> Kyle and Mav. It's been a topic on my mind all week. Um, other first impressions from the rest of the team, Mav and Andrew, anything that stood out to you about this issue upon revisiting? I don't think I've talked about this yet, but one of the things I really enjoyed about reading the the Alan Davis run on Excalibur is just watching him grow as a writer because mm-hmm. he wasn't there um, when he wrote Captain Britain, in my opinion. He, he, he didn't have the sort of grasp of the mechanics. And one thing I do note here is that he makes a classic mistake where he's got three um, interweaving stories going, but he has all of them on the first act uh, mm-hmm. rather than having, you know, one on the second or one on the third or something, which is how Claremont would normally do it. And I think that maybe hurts this issue a little bit because all it's doing is setup. Um, yeah. It's good setup uh, and obviously beautifully rendered, but I think it would be maybe more effective if he had um, um, staggered uh, his, his plot threads more effectively. There's a lot of kind of continuity dump in this issue, I admit, and it gets away with it. I think you're right, Andrew, because the art is so pretty. I mean, I don't mind looking at these pages, just retelling people's origin stories when they're done so well, And yeah. but at the same time, yeah, it was hard to summarize because it was just like a bunch of things happen and they're not always clearly connected i find in this issue it is paced weird it is i mean yeah, i think andrew definitely. acknowledged it. it's it's paced weird there's actually four stories because kylan's got you know his yeah two that's pages. true yeah, and that's but, not technically first act but well, it, it might is. as well be because we don't even i mean reading it we don't know who he is you know he's, get, yeah. he's gotten two pages per issue for the last couple of issues and i think it would work better in the modern era the right now era because you know books are written towards being a trade one day you know coming out of the claremont era you're right that's not how things were done and i agree with you that this is a lot of him growing as a writer. But what I like about this issue in particular is even more so than last issue, this establishes the tone of who Alan Davis is going to be on this book as a writer. It is very much a okay, here is how I'm writing Rachel and Megan. How did their relationship yeah. get here? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Because, you know, they, we've had some <laughs> dicey, like Claremont was doing a thing and then other people kind of didn't do it right. And like, there's been backtracking stuff. That's done. Now we, we complained about that on previous episodes, like where, as far as I remember, and I've not read every issue ahead, but like, we're done with the Rachel and Megan backtracking on their relationship. Now we're going to progress forward. And he's got a thing that he's going to do with them he's got a thing that he's going to do with brian he's got a thing that he's going to do with kurt and um the tech net i almost called them something else but um <laughs> but he's he's got plans that he is moving towards and i like that he is sort of trying to find his own way and i was aware of that at the time like it felt kind of oh okay well this is interesting and weird i have questions uh you know particularly with his treatment of rachel that i that i know the answer to now but like that i had questions of then and i'll I'll, I'll bring them up when we get to it i I won't say it's a home run but it was refreshing because it felt very much like for the first time in about 20 issues there was a plan yeah like there's clearly a plan and and i mean going even beyond claremont like since like the middle of the cross time caper like this is the first time it felt like oh i have a roadmap and i don't know where we're going but i I trust that the writer does know where he wants to go for sure i mean for me it's like it sort of feels like four short stories kind of in an anthology almost but each of the Mm -hmm. stories i love and has so much depth and so much creativity and places we could go with it so i'm just it's impossible for me to be mad at it because i like everything that we have here even though i don't think it holds together as well as it could as a single issue well and i think a lot of it too is that it's four short 
short stories that we get half of because they're yeah. all sort of continued in the next issue, particularly Brian and uh, the Rachel Megan storyline. So it's like for at least a couple of those storylines, this is sort of half of them. Yeah, yeah. The next sort of like three, four issues, we're going to be sort of dealing with a lot of these plots. Um, I obviously just really want to talk about the stroke your fur scene, but uh, we'll get to it. So <laughs> I, I've, got a, I've got a question specifically set up. Kylan does that. have nice fur. You're right. I mean, I, I, this is clearly what you're talking about. Yeah, people always people always ignore Kylan's furriness over Kurtz. It's very, yes. it's very. Well, I'm glad. To... I'm glad that Anna wants to talk about Kylan's fur for the entire episode. <laughs> we'll probably devote at least 30, 40 minutes to it. Like it deserves. We'll get there. <laughs> Making a, a hard swerve sort of away from that, but actually we will come back to that because I think it's actually related. Um, but given the specialty of our guest and because it's something I know we all care about a lot, but we haven't had that many discussions about on the pod, I wanted to spend some time today talking about race and representation in comics. And I'll start by tossing a very broad, very annoying question at you, Patrick, which is why is it important to study representations of race in superhero comics? Oh, geez. Yeah, that's that's that could fill up an entire podcast in, in it and of itself. Definitely could. <laughs> As a question. So um, I think for, I'll, I'll talk about it the way that that Alan and I sort of approach it in our class and the way that we sort of approached it in the book, which is sort of this, you know, and, and what we found with our, our students is they, you know, they consume comics or popular culture more generally, largely as entertainment and don't really think about it as communicating or conveying ideas about race and gender and, and sexuality and, and, and how they're being represented. And, you know, pop culture and comics are freighted with ideas about race and gender and sexuality and, and shape how their readers think about those things. And so to talk about those issues, both what they're doing well and what they're doing poorly is, you know, is very important to do. The, the example I always use is Chinua Achebe's comment on Heart of Darkness, where, you know, he talks about how if you're going to teach Heart of Darkness as sort of this canonical work of modernism and not talk about it, of its racism, you're basically canonizing that racism. And, and yeah, I think yeah. something like that goes on too. If, if we just sort of consume comics and popular culture as entertainment and do that ignoring what it's doing well and in particular what it might be doing poorly regarding race and representation, we, we run a similar risk. So I think that's, you know, for the ways in which the pop culture and comics can communicate and challenge ways that we typically think about race, I think it's very important to, to consider how race and gender and sexuality and class and, and all of those categories are being represented. Can I ask you a question about superheroes specifically? Obviously, there's a lot of very, um, <laughs> you know, condemnatory examples of racial representation in your book um, over the years and the whole history of the superhero genre. But is the superhero genre, because one of the critiques that's often made of it is that it does reduce things to stereotypes. That's one of the ways that it operates, right? You know, people have identities that are often based in stereotypes. So is it fated to represent those stereotypes just inherently? Or are there things about the superhero genre that can also make it really powerful in terms of representing diversity? Yeah, I don't I don't think it's fated. I think one of the ways that I think one of the ways we talk about it in um, the book is we describe sort of of race and representation in superhero comics in particular, vexed or if you know, since this is Excalibur, if I can make a terrible pun, as a double-edged sword is, is sort of how it is. Uh, but yeah, one of the in terms of of things that comics can do well, one of the things that that I think particularly in recent 
years, comics has done really well with characters like Miles Morales and Kamala Khan at Marvel and Jaime Reyes at, at DC. It sort of use a variation of the what we refer to as the Peter Parker trope, that those characters all fit into kind of a mold of, you know, young teenagers sort of struggling with their identities via powers, but their identities based in race and gender and, and sexuality. And, and I think those are some of the characters, particularly Miles and Kamala, that you've found, you know, in an era where you have trouble releasing new characters to widespread acclaim and acceptance, they've been very successful as characters in not just comics, but also outside of comics and various other forms of media. And so, you know, there are kind of tropes and narratives that comics have used, I think, to great effect, particularly in recent years, to talk about and and get us to consider race and identity very effectively. Well, yeah, and I mean, there's so many things bound up in that, right? I mean, the fact that it's a genre that's explicitly about identity, and the fact that it's specifically a genre that's about multiplicity and identity, right? I mean, this is, the superhero genre is like a genre invented by two Jewish men during, you know, at the at the start of World War II, and it's about double consciousness, it's about passing, it's about assimilation and acceptance, and all of these things are very woven into some of the foundational metaphors of this genre, but it's taken so long for the genre to really take those things up in a way that's not super, super problematic. Because this is actually isn't something that we've talked about on the pod directly, and I mean, it's obviously a topic everybody that's here having this conversation knows well, but sort of for the benefit of our listeners, where do X-Men comics sort of fit in within the history of diversifying the superhero genre? I mean, obviously the title of your book, All New, All Different, is taken from the title of the X-Men relaunch in 1975. So how are mm-hmm. X-Men comics in particular um, relevant to this discussion? For me, it again, I think X-Men in some ways embodies that sort of vexed, sort of double-edged nature of things. Uh, I mean, if you think about the the all-new, all-different team that debuted in 75, you know, it, that was a explicitly and, and very self-consciously multicultural team. And yet, almost immediately, with the exception of Storm, they got rid of Sunfire, they obviously got rid of Thunderbird, and you're left with you know, what was predominantly a white Western slash European group plus Storm, which again fits into, you know, a model that you saw particularly in the late 70s and early 80s where, you know, teams would attempt to diversify by adding one black member. You know, Avengers had Falcon and then they had the second Captain Marvel and there's, you know, Teen Titans had Cyborg. And so on the one hand, you know, the all new, all different team sort of marks, I think that's where we kind of mark uh, the beginning of of a very self-conscious multiculturalism But I think uh, X-Men comics run into a little bit of trouble because so much of what they do with race is also based on metaphor, you know, that it's the metaphor of mutancy equals race. And so because of that, I think in some ways they tend to deal more with metaphorical um, forms of race and representation than literal or real world examples. And I think that that tends to blunt a little bit of what they're doing. I think that's a very fair way of putting <laughs> the fact that this <laughs> franchise has historically done very bad with racial representation, yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I, I love Excalibur, but it's a very white book. Like, it's, it's. I mean, I love it, but I'm like, couldn't you have found someone, even even over 125 issues, I don't think it ever gets that diverse. It does not. And, and it's, yeah. it, it's, it is the X-Men problem. I mean, this era of X-Men, and honestly, it moves to the current day. It's gotten better, but 
not 100%. And we talked about this a bit in the past when we when we were talking about the Arabic characters, for instance. The way the X-Men have approached race, in, or the way the, the X-Men have uh, approached diversity through metaphor is a blessing and a curse. If you say everyone's got something different about them and you know everyone has value, you can sell diversity to a group that particularly in 1970 through 1990 was, and until today, but was super resistant you couldn't have sold a book as much as i you know i was a young black kid right it, when i went out and bought black books be they comics or not the only other people i knew who were buying black books in 1991 were other black kids i didn't have white friends who were reading luke cage i didn't have white friends who were reading reading falcon when i was a kid so if you're reading x-men you can get the idea of diversity through the metaphor it also means that you end up with people reading whatever their impoverished archetype type is their personal identity in they they read that into the story so the reason there's so much idea of well what's he doing queer representation all the way back in 1980 well sort of but also because everyone is just a generic metaphorical other you can make that about race you can make that about religion you can make that about sexual identity or gender identity or you know pretty much whatever you want if you want to read it that way so that's a bonus on the other hand you know the, the way it, the place it backfires is you can have someone read these books for 25 years and then still not understand that they're about diversity because all they see as a white person so if they're resistant to it and they want to be resistant to it you'll have people say why are you force feeding politics and wokeness into my into my superhero comics you know superman didn't used to be about this and of course <laughs> yes it did right but like oh, that's yeah. what happens if it's if it's visibly white it's easy to ignore if you want to yeah, it's that presumption of universality around whiteness, which is mm -hmm. incidentally what I wanted to talk about with Megan and race and race oh. issue. It's almost as though I might have read ahead. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, I want I want to give you a chance to talk about this as well, Andrew. But let's talk about the Megan example, and, and we can kind of get into it that way. There's a lot of pretty obviously stereotypical stuff about Megan's origin story uh, related to her Romani heritage, which is referred to in this era as her Gypsy heritage. Anytime that I say that, I'm going to be referring to that in context of this comic. That is not the word that we currently use. Just want to be clear about that. Um, so quote-unquote gypsy heritage is often a catch-all in superhero stories for like mysterious exoticism, usually <laughs> with actual magic involved. So I'll, I'll put it to you, Patrick. What do you make of Megan's story? And is there anything interesting that we can do with race and representation in Megan's story? Or is it just problematic and we have to just kind of accept that? Because here we have this shapeshifter who does have a persecuted background that ties in with race and ethnicity, and yet she chooses to present in a very Aryan white fashion, sort of modeled after Brian. And we get these debates about, is that her real self? Is that not her real self? And to an extent, that's what this entire storyline is doing. And it gets back to those questions of metaphor as well because the ways that Megan represents as different is in a fantastical monstrous form right not necessarily in a real world example of difference right so I mean I'll just put it to you as a broad question like if you're going to analyze Megan's story in terms of race and representation what do you do with the story 
I mean, as you just sort of very nicely summed up, there's just a, there's a lot there that is, I think, problematic about Megan and race, precisely because not only does she present as white, but but as you've pointed out before, she's Brian's fantasy of a a white woman, and so you know she's not even her own sort of white person. She's a projection of of you know Brian as well, which sort of adds into sort of I, I think some of the things we're talking about, and and I think it goes back to some of what uh, Mav just got done saying in terms of, you know, on the one hand, if we're generous, maybe we see Megan's whiteness as, again, being that entree into getting readers to think about issues of race without necessarily confronting them with sort of of real world or, or literal representations of race. So maybe Megan works at the time in the same way that the the X-Men metaphor sort of works at the time to sort of of mask what might be going on. But I think in this day and age that that what may the way if, if we see Megan as tackling race, I think we see her as or her representation as doing it in a way that erases actual literal raced individuals. Well yeah, I mean you brought up Kamala Khan earlier. I can't help yeah. remind me of her using her shape-changing powers in that first arc of her first story to become the perfect, beautiful, blonde mm-hmm. version of yeah. Ms. Marvel, the Carol Danvers Ms. Marvel, right? And then realizing that kind of doesn't fit her, right? And she's going to use yeah. her shape-changing in different ways. And yet that's not Megan's story. And I don't think it has to be Megan's story because Megan is a different person and has different priorities and has a different story. But it's something I struggle with for sure, like how to read that character in that context. I mean, can I put it to you, Andrew, to see if you had thoughts about it? I mean, what do you do with this aspect of Megan's story? We've talked in the past about how she can be a productive character to use to talk through sort of metaphors of femininity, you know, in positive ways, almost through the very fact that she represents stereotypes. I mean, can we do anything useful like that with this character having to do with race? I, I think so, actually. I mean, we had Margaret Galvin on to talk about how um, um, Kitty's ability to phase, and actually Stephanie Burt talked about this as well, puts her in this sort of liminal state. I would argue Megan does something kind of similar in that her fluidity and her susceptibility to conforming to an aesthetic standard, um, you know, implicitly, I, I think that calls attention to the artifice. It, it calls attention to all that's kinds true. of questions that's about true. racial identity. I mean, we're having this conversation based on it. I, I don't know if that's something the average Excalibur reader would be um, locked onto. That might be charitable. But I, I do think that having this shapeshifter in, in amongst your team who is actively exploring her identity and her ethnicity creates opportunities, let's say. And then just from my like personal perspective, I don't default Megan to the, 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 the white blonde lady. I default her to the werewolf because that's how I first saw her. That's how she was first drawn. So, so I to me, the artifice was always there with Megan but again that's just how I read her I love that reading of her and yeah I mean I I really want to read it that way too because I think that's the most interesting way to read it and I, I definitely agree with you that there's a lot of potential with it attracting attention to the artifice but then it is just that problem of it condoning her artifice that like makes me nervous I don't I don't think you're unique but I don't think you're common by assuming that well okay yes <laughs> I actually think you're I actually think you are a wonderful special snowflake <laughs> true <laughs> no i no i think you are I, I think you are offering a great reading i don't think it's the most common i think that your average reader is going to assume that the real megan is pretty supermodel blonde lady even after this story 
I, I mean, even 25 years after this story in current Excalibur comics, it, it's her default state in a weird way. So, okay, in the Nightcrawler transversing, you know, the Nightcrawler alternate universe comic, the alternate version of Megan still looks like Brian's fantasy girl, even though there's no reason logically yeah, why she yeah. should. If anything, she should be Kurt's fantasy girl or just her own person. She can't be, right? Like, so the, so that's my, that's my weirdness of it. I think that that's just because we've defaulted it to the white version it's hard to escape unless you want to do the actual work on your own. I mean, I think the headcanon yeah. stuff's important. I think it really is. But I think that you have to be willing to bring it there in a way that you don't. With, with Kamala Khan, like, she's clearly brown regardless of, you know, she she actually very infrequently, um, she can't, like, shape change to other things. That's not what's the, how she uses her powers. So I think that presents a different way. Or to look at uh, another of my favorite comics, just otherness was very much the point of Starfire. Starfire is a beautiful she's not a shape changer but she is a beautiful supermodel lady who is orange you know she is very othered much like kurt right like so i think that's i think there's a difference with megan because See, think, of the default i think there's maybe more similarity there than you do at least mm -hmm. um, and again just different readings but like for me megan's let's call it her default whiteness as people read it is specifically entangled with brian's ideal vision for her brian who is a symbol of fucking britain sure you know what i sure. mean so the idea that she's in this abusive relationship relationship right mm -hmm. uh, that forces her into this this ultra caucasian manifestation Aryan. Um, to me that really calls attention to this artifice is damaging or at least as claremont was writing it um in the early issues of excalibur the same way that kamala is um forced well, forced is a strong word coerced in order to adopt carol danvers because she is attuned culturally to the standards of her time you know what i mean in, in both cases there's an abusive relationship at play making them do things sort of quasi unintentional in terms of the form that they're taking so i don't know i i see a parallel there but as yeah, i said no, I, I, just I, I definitely read. see the parallel i just think that i think it's important to note that i don't think you default to the parallel i think you have to have your analytical brain on and in order to notice it because I, I feel like and, and again i don't know but i feel like your passive 14 year old reader who picks up this book in 1991 doesn't do that work uh, you, you, you have to know too <laughs> well i think also in terms of of i you know that the kamala khan megan comparison now that now that it's come up is is really fascinating to me i i think the other thing and I, I i tend to agree with mav is is that the kamala khan series is being very self-conscious in yeah how the ways in which that that white carol danvers identity does not fit kamala like that that's part of the storyline is making it clear that that she's choosing to not be that whereas i agree with mav that you know seeing megan in those terms the the story itself doesn't make that explicit that's something that is is there to I be interpreted disagree. i think there's a few key scenes where you could argue it's there like like when when brian flies away from megan she turns into half werewolf there's another mm -hmm. scene where she takes on that shape and says would you still love me if i looked like this all the time uh, and i can answer that question for you no he was no <laughs> <laughs> so there's a few scenes where it manifests i agree it's nowhere near on the surface the way that it is in ms marvel but i don't know i, I that, that that's my reading I'm committed to it. I'm buying. <laughs> well, I, I, like I, I agree right. with you, Andrew, and I think it's important to emphasize that that reading is canonically present. Like it's not just headcanon. That's a reading that's present in the book. But it's just mm -hmm. it is hard because knowing the progression of this story, it's hard for me not to just yeah. Because I mean, you know, like it is like we're supposed to celebrate the fact that she gets to be this beautiful blonde <laughs> woman who gets the beautiful blonde guy who and changes to, to be with her. Yeah, like I mean, it's a really. But I hate that so much anyway. 
I know. I don't, it's just there's a lot of like the kind of misogynist underpinning of certain romantic yeah. tropes in the entire storyline of like he's different 100%. now, yeah. and yeah, you know, it's just there's a lot. There's really a lot, yeah. and I, you know, I feel bad. They're like we are entering the period in which Brian's going to become more sympathetic, and I have promised our yeah. listeners we're going to be talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's, just, it's a problem of like we have a vision of these comics that are over a long period of time right so we're just you know being critical of the ways that some of these stories were told but you know yeah no i really i really like andrew's reading i just wish the comics lived up to that reading yes. more yes. that's yes. that's kind of how i feel about it. i was like I, I wish the comics lived up to that more and i think our listeners understand this one thing that's important like i like andrew's reading a lot and i actually kind of even share it because i think it's there but i think our listeners understand that if we don't have a little bit of discussion and disagreement on it then we have no show so (laughs) i I do certainly see the point that you're making well let's talk a little bit about i do want to talk about the stroke your first scene and i want to talk about the good and bad of that scene because i actually think it does relate to racial identity in some interesting ways and can uh sort of allow us to talk about some of those things that we have brought up briefly in the past about kurt's relationship to like a racialized identity i'll put it that way and whether that's a useful frame for this character so okay like i'll say a couple of things about it first so i really 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 love this scene so we're talking about the scene where miss amelia weatherspoon uh, with Di thomas <laughs> arrives at the lighthouse and just everything about this page is wild so first of all kurt opens the door upside down with his tiny track shorts for Di thomas giving him a total crotch view and then we have die <laughs> with a cigarette in his mouth looking down at kurt's crotch with just kind of an intrigued little expression there so that on its own is an interesting panel uh and then we have miss amelia weatherspoon who's you know very enchanted with Kurt my my what a devilishly handsome rogue you are might I be permitted to stroke your fur and he says please and she says my my blue velvet so there's a lot going on here first of all that thing that I'm always crowing about again this is another thing that it's important to me that this is actually not headcanon and is a thing that's actually canonically present in the text which is Kurt's appeal to female gazes and you know the way that that's done both visually through the art but also that that's an attribute of his character that you know this is something he does and this is something he's used to doing this is something he enjoys and that's something that i like about the scene i like that it's a visibly older woman i think that that's important as well um visibly older women do not get a lot of play in the superhero genre yeah. so that is unusual this is also the first reference to the texture of kurt's fur the fact that he has fur doesn't come up that often but here we get somebody specifically commenting in at least a sensual context about the texture of his body it is a remarkable scene all on its own just for those details and i said at one point that this scene broke my brain and i'm not really exaggerating in the sense that one of the things that I find really interesting about it is because I'm really interested in the ways that Nightcrawler is objectified in comics. And, you know, I did mm-hmm. a thread for Claremont Run about that. We talked about that quite a lot in our um, episode on Excalibur 31, the issue where he's naked for most of the issue. And we talked about how complex his objectification is, and we talked about race a little bit there as well. But picking this specific texture for his fur, it means that he doesn't really feel like a real animal. It means like he feels like a toy. He feels like a mm. stuffed animal. And that is a fascinating detail, especially within a story verse in which he canonically makes toys of himself that have like a sexual <laughs> component 
So there's a lot going on here, and that is partly why this scene is so fascinating to me. But I also want to talk about the racialized aspect of this. This is a white woman entering Kurt's house with a cop who is asking if she can touch his difference. So what exactly do we do with that? And Mav, you already said you had thoughts about it, so take it away if you would like. Okay, so for our listener, I'm not touchy about this, but you know, I am a black person, and so um, understand that this comes from a little bit of personal experience. I've had this happen to me. This to me frequently. It is extremely, extremely common for um, black people to have white people with very little experience with black people come come up and say, "Can I touch your hair?" It's weird. It's weird. It's creepy. Don't do it. You know, (laughs) maybe in actual sexual sense, you know, maybe if you think the person's cool with it. But if it's just a random person that you met like 12 seconds ago, it's creepy as all hell. And it happens literally all the time. I don't think Alan Davis knows that. I don't think he knows that because Kurt's Kurt's reaction to this is, Please, by all means, yes, pet me, weird white lady that I don't know. Like, that is a weird response to have. Now, Kurt's not me, and I don't profess to be, to speak for all black people. I I don't, that is not my intention. Kurt very much enjoys his difference. Kurt likes the ways that his difference gets him laid. It happens a lot throughout all of Kurt's previous appearances. You know, like he does, um, there is a little bit of him allowing himself to be fetishized in order to, you know, there are advantages to it. And I'm not going to say that doesn't exist in real life blackness as well, but that's not the situation that's going on here. The situation that's going on here is a complete and total stranger walked into the room and asked. (laughs) And if you've never had that happen to you, I think it's really hard to understand how weird it feels, but just imagine, imagine anything else, right? Like if you're a woman, imagine a random stranger walks in and says, hi, you have nice boobs. Can I touch them? You know, like, like that's well, people getting their pregnancy belly. People wanting yes, to touch their pregnancy yes. belly is sort of. And it's, yeah. and yeah, it's that's what biz- I was thinking of. And it's bizarre. It's a bizarre thing to happen. And it happens so much that the fact that he's just sort of immediately OK with it is one of those things that sort of betrays that it was trying to play up his racialized metaphorically racialized difference but written by someone who doesn't really understand that and again i like alan davis i'm a big fan but reading this in 1991 when he wrote it i was like nah that's not what that's like (laughs) and i you know and and it was very clear to me that you don't you know you've never asked a black person if this is okay because it just doesn't feel okay now it often is something that you sort of let go because it's like yeah fine you know if, <laughs> if particularly if there's a if it's an old fucking lady. cop there you know <laughs> <laughs> you know like i understand but like but like it is also it's kind of weird like people let children do it a, a lot it feels creepy and weird and so that's my little rant about it <laughs> so i i knew mav like the first time that i read this scene that like this would be a situation that would be triggering for a lot of readers just given how blatant it is about like the similarity of that yeah 
but like it's it's hard because i i think that you're right that it's not written with consciousness i that's not how it sounds it sounds like we're supposed to like amelia miss amelia weatherspoon because she yes. likes kurt and thinks he's cool yeah uh-huh. which i think is that's how it reads yeah yeah which by the way I, I should be clear typically when it's asked it's not it is with that reading right so typically when someone asks me it's hard for me to be mad at people who have asked can i touch your hair because i know it is not someone who asks it because they're like creepy black person right it's because i mean uh, i I don't mean to put my wife on blast but she'll even say my wife thinks my my wife is white um, for listeners who don't know and she is aware of wow mav's hair is way softer than mine that's kind of neat to her but it is also still weirdly objectifying and she is cognizant of it because we had that conversation 20 something years ago when we started dating right like so it's a it's a thing and i get it and it's always so i don't anybody who said it i don't want you to feel bad about yourself if you've ever said that to one of your black friends and like oh my god what have i done it's it happens so commonly (laughs) that you can't even understand but but it's just it's weird that he has no acknowledgement reaction to it other than yeah sure you know which that's odd to me i know i like my deep and i do headcanon this scene a lot because it is a scene that i've thought about a lot and i definitely thought about that component of it when i first read it and it's just it made me think a lot about and again i don't think this is written into the scene i really don't think the scene was thought about with this much depth but if i can do like a little bit of a headcanoning of it it's like kurt is a character that yes he likes his difference but he also would be like this you know to me like he would would be sure. like I'm gonna perform my difference. I'm going to accept this touch from this person, and there is a component of does he feel like he has to do that, or is this something that he's doing as a free choice? Because this is a character who's been, yeah. you know, people have tried to kill him based on his appearance. So there's just so much tension in this moment to me. Of like, I really would love to know his interior monologue of is he making a free choice in this exchange, or does he feel pressure to do this? And I mean that relates to the real world example of that too right it's like mm-hmm. why do i have to perform for somebody why are they making this request of me because it's not the same thing it's an apples and oranges thing but i mean the being asked to smile thing you know happens to me a lot yeah. um, by people on the street and i hate it like i want to kill somebody <laughs> every time somebody does that to me because i mean it is just a thing you're just walking around enjoying your day and someone's like you owe me a performance and you don't yeah. owe anybody a performance and the presumption that you do owe somebody a performance is just so dehumanizing and it's just like infuriating. Anyway, Patrick, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say sort of, of along the same lines as, as you were just saying, and I think how much of this is also, and again, this isn't at all in the comic, but how much of this is also just, you know, Kurt's response of enchanted and, and please, how much of that is just, you know, a response to the trauma of how his difference has been responded to in the past where they tried to kill him. Yeah, yeah. You know, is, is this just, you know, that that's what he's learned to do to navigate these kind of encounters that that he's just learned yeah you know i've got to just kind of go along with this and and i'll play the what does she say devilishly handsome rogue that that you know that's what he performs because that's how he's learned to you know to get a you know to get a safe response as opposed to the you know being chased with pitchforks yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and there's there's exoticism in the framing of the scene too Mm -hmm. Uh, we already talked about it Um, he's upside down literally when the door opens so he's presented as an object of exotic spectacle exoticism of course is a form of racism um so i don't know i i think i think davis is maybe falling into that trope a little bit harder than i would mm-hmm. like him to yeah and it's tough right because kurt is putting himself in that position he chooses to open the door in the way that he chooses to open the door he chooses yeah. what he's wearing in this scene so there is some choice
voice present to that. But yeah, it just that becomes complicated to me when Miss Amelia Weatherspoon asks that of him, which is a strange request, no matter what. And that's sort of what, what Anna, you were asking about earlier. It's the problematic nature of using pure metaphor. Yeah to do diversity right because yes kurt chooses this but kurt is also patrick you said it's a very white team it's an extremely white team yeah yeah it's and a wholly the, white team and the most visibly diverse person is kurt who is actually a white person despite yeah. the fact that he looks blue mm -hmm. and we're about to join i mean kylan spoilers kylan's gonna join the team spoilers again kylan is also actually yeah. a white person despite the fact that he looks brown it's, it's a weirdness about it that yes kurt's choosing this but davis or previously claremont you know chose to put kurt here in this position right it, like they chose the team they could have just had a black person on it you know <laughs> like they could have invented more characters they didn't because of the defaultness of whiteness. I don't mean to be negative about it because I think that they are doing a lot of really important work with this issue in particular. The fact that they're investigating Romani ancestry and even trying to not make it, ooh, spooky. Is that, I mean, like they're like the fact that they're trying to do something that's not just <laughs> silliness, right? Silly gypsy people do magic, you know, which is the way it had been done up until then. That's good. Like that is an acknowledgement of something that did not happen before this they but again they also don't know the history of the word gypsy <laughs> you, know, you know like they don't say romani because no one bothered to look it up so it's weird They're in this and this is one of those weirdnesses um where i where i sort of want to be you know it's why you become an academic right so that i can have it both ways and i can say yeah it's complicated there's progressiveness and there's like kind of uh you know, two steps forward, one step back. I mean, yeah, I'll just I'll just put a finer point on my observations on it, which is that part of why I'm so interested in this scene is just there is so much going on in it. And it's yeah. not necessarily that I think everything that's going on in it is positive. But in terms of if you're interested in kind of the identity of Kurt, whether it's the sexual identity or the racial identity, just his identity as a character, this is a fascinating four panels. Uh, something else that struck me from what you said, Anna, is you may I think you said something about, you know, you really wish we had like Kurt's thought balloons or, or mm -hmm. something. One of the things that just struck me is, does Davis use thought balloons at all in the issue? And I'm wondering if that's one of the major, because Claremont would use thought balloons fairly often, but I'm wondering if part of it is that, you know, Davis tends to use, I think he uses more caption boxes to explain kind of what's going on than the characters kind of, of actually thinking. I did, I did a quick flip through the issue. I'm not sure there's a thought bubble in it. So I wonder if that, if that's, if some of that is, as we've said, you know, Davis still kind of coming into his own as a writer too. In that, 1991, the thought yeah. balloon's dying. And yeah, the, that, the that, on its, yeah, completely on its way out of Marvel Comics yeah. um, in the next because year. Because of Watchmen, right? Because yeah. of Watchmen and because of the way the for lack of a better term, the image artists, once they take over, they don't like them. Those five guys specifically do not like them. So yeah. they're going, and that's going to reset the the status quo of comics pretty much moving forward. Yeah, I'm flipping ahead here, and Patrick's observation holds really true. Yeah. Davis does for not this, use thought bubbles. For this, for this issue, it holds true, but there are future issues in which he has some large, rather awkward there, thought okay. bubbles. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's an interesting one with Kurt that does sort of harken back to some of these issues of race and fetishization in the next issue, which we will talk about again. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. When he's thinking about his role as leader of TechNet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I do want to ask Anna a question. 
because like you hinted at something that's not racialized so much as you know sexualized about Kurt, which was you said you talked about the curious choice to make Kurt feel like velvet as opposed to feel like fur, which I think is I agree is interesting. Particularly again, we are going to have Kylan on the team soon, who is explicitly furry, and Megan when she's in her werewolf form is explicitly furry and scaly. She's weird, but the fact that Kurt's texture is I don't know how to refer to it other than non-organic you know obviously it is organic it is non-natural animal occurring even you know short-furred animals like short-furred cats and rabbits it's still not velvet to say to call it that is a very curious choice yeah um relatedly anna have you ever seen nightcrawler's fur actually visually represented oh yes 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 yeah i mean not well not in a comic not in a comic but in fan art yeah yeah. Oh, okay. Because it's always in, just, in it's, comics, it's they skin, never right? do it. Yeah. Oh, you mean yeah? The the two movie representations both use they both have him just be blue skinned as opposed to furred. Mm-hmm. And in terms of visualizations of it, I mean, he's more often to be sort of visualized as, as shiny rather than to have texture. I can't think of a single yeah. comic book uh, instance in which yeah, he's actually pictured up. as having fur. No, no, I can't think. I, I can think of one. The cover of when Claremont comes back for his like third stint on X Men, and there's that cover that's a close up of his tail and the fur. Is rendered there and it is actually by davis and oh, that's like okay. the only one I also I, some reason i'm recalling an issue in which nightcrawler and beast compare their fur <laughs> something i don't know if i'm making that up or but i remember there being some sort of like them actually discussing the differences in i have no idea when or where it happened so it's completely yeah, useless can, to bring it up but for some reason it's, it's yeah like i, I, I seem to maybe it was when he showed up in the the burn claremont run when beast was with the team briefly i don't i don't know i just i vaguely recall a, a discussion of where they're comparing their fur yeah I can't place it though. Yeah. The scene that I think of is the one from the Roberto Aguirre Sakaka series where they have a conversation about their different appeal to women, just a brief conversation. Mm. And then Hank is like, why is it that you are both blue and furry and yet you're always in and out of these romantic entanglements and I can't get a date. And then Kurt just sort of doesn't answer and is like, well, if you want to switch places and then they just kind of go on to something else. Yeah. Um, the only dated Dazzler who in this universe is, like the most yeah. famous woman she's beyonce yeah. so screw you hank <laughs> like, seriously but, but yeah i mean it, it was sort of like in terms of that you know because there are different types of furry creatures and there are different types of eroticism sort of bound up in that and i do think it's interesting the different ways that different fan artists and different fan fiction writers as well sort of deal with kurt's fur like some people do want it to be more animalistic you know you'll have stuff where uh, i don't know how much you want to get into this okay you'll have stuff where sort of like logan and kurt have a relationship and part of their relationship is like logan grooms kurt and that is part of their bond and you know whether you're into that or not doesn't really matter it's a thing that exists and <laughs> And I know if we're going to talk about this, let's talk about it. But yeah, to me, the fact that it isn't sort of an animalistic texture, that is definitely, like I mentioned that already, you know, it's one of the things that particularly fascinates me about it because it does make him consumable in a certain way. And I mean, really, it just makes me think of texture of stuffed animal. And in terms of the objectification of Kurt, and especially going back to that uncanny 168 scene with the Banff doll in front of his genitals, and, you know, the ways 
that he allows himself to be consumed as an object by female proxies within the story, but not necessarily limited to that context, of course, when we're talking about readership. But yeah, to me, that is why I find that detail so fascinating. And I really would love to know how deliberate that choice was. And it will torture me forever that I will probably never know. (laughs) Did they know what they were doing when they're like, let's turn this character who already is very female gazy into a character who also feels like a stuffed animal? And it's a lot. I feel like, I mean, again, velvet is a specific term that we don't use on animals a lot. So I feel like it is intentional. Yeah. it's not even like I hear people um, refer to fur or hair as silky that yeah. I could believe yeah. Yeah. satiny mm-hmm. I could believe velvet is a very much a fabric term mm-hmm. which again like is complicated especially in this context when we're talking about <laughs> the complicated and problematic like objectification of him in a scene like this but uh, again I'll just default to by saying it's a very interesting detail at the very least okay well you've humored me by talking about this a great deal so <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about a couple of other things um, let's talk about the Captain Britain Corps a little bit um, and sort of the relationships between well okay I'll ask you Patrick and I I think I already kind of know the answer to this question, but I'll I'll ask it anyway for the benefit of, of our listeners. Does Brian's whiteness matter? I mean, when we talk about race, we, well, I'll say when white people talk about race, I won't say when everybody talks about it, um, we sometimes do a bad thing where we talk about racialized identities as everything but white. Mm-hmm. But is Brian's whiteness important to his character? Ooh, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, particularly in terms of being sort of as all the Captain Britain Corps is the embodiment of Britain and and a sort of a very sort of imperialistic vision of, of Britain. I think I think the whiteness mm-hmm. very much plays into that. And you can even see in the fact as, as we've already mentioned that the vast majority of the Captain Britain Corps is white. That, that again, I think there, there's in some ways, you know, a, a it, it embodies kind of the the default assumption is as you just mentioned, Anna, that that white is sort of normal and and or white is the norm and everything else is is different from it. Yeah, and I mean, it it strikes me that when we see these sort of crowd shots of the Captain Britain Corps, we do have difference represented, but it is usually fantasy difference. I think we have one black character in the first page, and I don't think we have any characters that are. People people of color like in the Captain Britain chorus for the rest of this issue. Yeah, the only other one is is on the very last page of the issue in the group. There's the there's one person to, sort of towards the back like right off of Brian's right shoulder that is colored with dark skin, but I don't know. I also think that costume is one of the ones that appeared back in issue 24 and it was worn by a white guy. So I'm wondering if it's just a miscoloring yeah, there. So I think that's that Centurious Britain or something like that that Brian fights at one point. But that's it. So yeah, those are the only two. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because you know we've already it's similar to the conversation we had about Megan right like I mean does this matter you know what does the Captain Britain Corps represent does it make sense in terms of the story that we're telling about imperial identity for the vast majority of these characters to be white or is it just a choice that's made by not thinking about this enough I mean what do you think I probably lean towards the latter in yeah. in that like a lot of things in the comics it's it's just something that you know is not being thought about in the time and and you know to to if, you know if, if we're gonna let 
you know, Davis a little bit off the hook here, I guess. I, I don't think it's something that's unique to him. I think that's a, yeah. a way of thinking that was pretty predominant at the time. And, and you know, and again, that that's one of the points that we make in the book is that the, the way in which comics often think about race very often reflects how race was thought about at the time in, in America in general. And so I think, you know, I, I think we're seeing in a lot of the things we've talked about today, ways in which that what's going on in the comic are very much a product of a kind of thinking that was prevalent at the time or an a non-thinking that was prevalent at the time. And I was going to put it to you, Andrew, to sort of, because, I mean, we could link some of this back to the Alan Moore stuff as well. And I mean, again, I just reread it. So there is a prominent, I don't want to get sidetracked talking about the Alan Moore stuff, but at the same time, there is a prominent black character in that storyline who is, Mm -hmm. what's his name? Like a man dragon or something like that? Who like is trying to usurp Saturnine. That's a complicated portrayal all on its own. Oh, jeez. Yeah. (laughs) But um, anyway, Andrew, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think the problematic element here and and exactly as Patrick is saying this is nothing new is mm-hmm. that the mystical premise of the Captain Britain Corps implies divine right of whiteness as an attribute mm. of Britain right and I, I think that's where things get a little bit uglier than we would want them to be yeah that's fair Mav did you have any thoughts about all of this about the Captain Britain Corps I mean what should the Captain Britain Corps represent I mean to me the generous reading is like because they represent imperialism because they suck maybe it makes sense <laughs> that they're white and this is something that we're yeah. supposed to be complex uh, I think they should represent an empire. I, I, mean, I, I yeah. mean, it's a complicated question. Uh, the the history of race and class and nationality in specifically the British Empire is very, very complicated. And I think that the Captain Britain Corps should actually reflect that. I think that there is a bit of Davis trying here. I think there's also a bit of him defaulting to it because that's the world that he lives in and both nationally and historically, just like in the time period this is written. So I think part of it's just happening automatically for him. But I do think he he is trying. I think he's aware of the criticisms of what the British Empire is. And I think he's trying. I also think he is a neophyte writer and not necessarily prepared to go everywhere that you know he might need to go in 1991. But you know, that doesn't mean don't try, right? Like I like I like mm-hmm. that he's doing this. This is a complicated question that I've like just various times when consulting for people, I've had people ask me questions like, you know, should I, you know, should this character be black instead? And uh, a criticism I have of attempts to do diversity are when people will i call it sprinkling diversity on something they will sprinkle diversity on it for color or they will sprinkle diversity for it on gender or sexuality and the assumption is that normative people don't have a race or a gender or a sexuality right like so um people will talk about diversity and they'll be like oh you know if we want to talk about ethnic people and they mean black people or brown people or hispanic or asian as though white people had no race or ethnicity. ethnicity. So like, I think it matters to have an ethnically diverse white cast if we are prepared to talk about it. And I think that there is a story of, you know, what does it mean to have a Captain Britain Corps, a universal protectorate that is based around the British Empire because the British Empire for hundreds of years thought they were the entire universe. And up until basically 
what I'm going to call the American Empire replaced them. <laughs> you know, like the because the Americans do this now, right? And I I get that I'm an American, you know, whereas my esteemed co-hosts are not, right? But we do this now, where we're like <laughs> we're the leaders of the free world. Nobody elected us the leaders of the free world, but <laughs> it's just it's the things that we do, right? So I think it matters, and I do think that the whiteness matters, and I I think he's half um, ready to address that and half not that's very fair yeah and we'll see more of it in future issues as we're we're getting into more captain britain Corps stuff but i just kind of wanted to introduce it i will say that the captain britain Corps is good for one thing in this issue which is that they finally answer the question of whether or not captain britain is the leader of excalibur because <laughs> one of the charges against brian is that he made himself a mere member of the yeah. team and that you know he's not so clearly they're upset that he's not the leader of the team and that that's somehow criminal on his part I really wish there was a point in this book, in this issue at any point where where Brian said, wait, what? I am the leader. And everybody's like, oh, oh Brian, no, no, oh, honey. Yeah. I also wonder for Mav, in terms of what you were just saying, in terms of, of Davis not being quite as strong a writer as he could be, I'm wondering if the fact that Hauptman England is the representative of the prosecution here is... Brilliant. A way that a way that we might yeah that's what I was gonna ask is how how do you see that fitting is is that a place where you think Davis might be interrogating that a little bit or is it something that's just kind of happening by chance I think I think it's intentional and the reason I think it's intentional and and brilliant is because there is a specific discussion of no you need to follow the world the rules of your world so mm-hmm. it's okay to murder in a world where murder's okay and it's not okay mm-hmm. to pick flowers where picking flowers is yeah. okay yep. that is brilliant and i think that making that conversation allows you to say so under the context of hoffman england's world nazism is right so that's why we don't come down on him so much and the fact that you're willing to excuse that because it's going with the flow is such an indictment of empire and such an indictment of whiteness is it's the excuse that we use when we're interrogating 200 year old american literature going ah but they didn't know slavery was wrong yeah they did but they did it anyway and that's (laughs) and that's and i think nor i think that acknowledging that is i think this book is acknowledging yeah we know nazis are bad but you know we're like this guy so we're going to keep the nazi and i i love that i i love that about this book Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that moment, Patrick, because that is an important thing. I mean, again, the fact that the person who's prosecuting Brian is a fucking Nazi (laughs) tells you all you kind of need to know about this organization, right? It is apparently a member in good standing with the rest of the Captain Britain Corps. Um, Yeah, he's a Nazi and everybody's cool with it. Yeah, and and, you know, I I realize for Anna that Brian breaking Kurt's leg is probably a a heinous crime. Um, (laughs) But clearly that's worse than anything Hauptman England did on his world. I know we're running out of time, but let's just talk about um, Megan and Rachel briefly. We're going to have more focus on their storyline in some subsequent issues, but we do have some important kind of setup for that here. So I did just want to mention it. And I did want to mention, you know, the heartbreaking scene of Rachel interacting with the family, which I have never identified with her more than in that moment. It was such a great scene. You know, if we're going to talk about the skill of Davis as a writer, he freaking got me in that scene. But yeah, let's talk about what's going on with these characters here. And I'll give you a first stab at it if you want, Patrick. You know, how do we see the Rachel Megan relationship evolving here and it's sort of calling back to and fixing I would argue some stuff that we had before that had really gotten dropped but what was kind of your take on it did you find this evolution of their relationship interesting here yeah I mean for me I you know 
in terms of this scene, it's for me, it's all about the Scots. I, I love the Scots family from when they show up in the in the, the original Captain Britain trade paperback, which I think mm-hmm. I had just gotten not long before this. But yeah, it's well, it's interesting that that there's kind of this greater sympathy between Rachel and Megan that Rachel even explains earlier in the issue, talking about how for different reasons they both kind of live in the present, and that that's what sort of creates this kind of of rapport between them. And it's interesting to see, you know, the series has for so long paired Rachel and Kitty. For me, it's kind of interesting to see Davis pairing Rachel and Megan in this moment and how the ways in which that they are two very different characters. Yeah, I really like the empathy between those two characters because they are such different characters. I do really like mm-hmm. the potential there in terms of that relationship. Yeah. I mean, and- Andrew, did you have thoughts about it? I often come to you with sort of these thoughts about Megan, and she's very implicated here. But you also said, like, yeah, when I mentioned the the scene with Rachel and the family. So I was wondering if you had thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's sweet. The specific line is that Rachel opens up to unguarded sincerity. Uh, like, like she's so strong. She's so badass. She's been developed as this character who comes from trauma and has all manner of defense mechanisms uh, and anxiety. And the idea that she would be struck by just this this open and sincere family is really sweet. No, I, I really like that. Um, and then the other scene is um, um, the scene where she goes into Megan's mind and memories and it discovers that Megan yeah. lives only in the moment which I thought was Mm kind of cute too. So again, we're seeing Davis really, as Mav was saying, defining these characters for himself. Like it's not perfectly consistent with what Claremont Mm -hmm. did, but as Mav said, who cares? Like, yeah, this is Davis making the book his yeah. own, and he's, he's doing cool stuff. And in a way that my one of my criticisms about previous authors, whose names we don't have to mention, um, has been you know, trying to do the impression of Claremont, and you know, not, yeah, yeah. This is Davis. I mean, he clearly he learned under Claremont. He did the book with him, right? Mm-hmm. But I really do think it's his own version of the character. And like for me, the thing that really some of it works, some of it doesn't. The thing that really works for me, the one. One thing that works better for me than anything else in this book is when Rachel goes into Megan's mind and she's like, there's no size shields here. This is weird. Like nothing. She's just a complete open book. And I remember reading that and going, of course she is. Yeah, that's perfect, right? (laughs) By the same token, I don't like that he that he goes when when the thing you were just mentioning about the opening up to sincerity, that I'm fine with. But the next thing is, and so she turns the Phoenix Force off for the first time since she got it. I'm like, why? Like, there's no there's no reason for her to do that. She wouldn't. I can't believe she'd do that because it's just like a, hey, somebody come attack me now. That seems like a stupid detail. But I I just want to be human. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that he was doing that, but that didn't work for me. But the but I do appreciate that he's taking his own he's taking his own risks. Mm -hmm. That's good. And he's coming up with a way to justify these things, you know, whether you agree with it or not. But I mean, it shows thought, right? I mean, he's thinking about the nature of Megan's body's body and her powers and how that affects her mind, like how that affects her character, right? So, I mean, there's a level of deep thinking about how these characters work that is clearly present here that I really appreciate. Um, in terms of the Rachel thing and the family, the other thing I just wanted to note about it, that it's the opening herself up thing that's affecting to me about it. But it's also just how out of place and awkward she feels 
feels in the yeah. presence of these normies. <laughs> and, like, uh, I like a lot of identification there in terms of, you know, being a small town girl who comes away to the city and comes back in your wild city clothes. And it's just like, oh, yeah. boy, <laughs> I don't even know if I can right? sit yeah. in this room and like be a person because I just feel so out of place. That really, really hit me in this scene. Well, it's also interesting. And, you know, we, we see hints of it here and it obviously develops further on. I know, you know, you've talked about on the show the, the way in which that Rachel is is sort of framed in terms of trauma mm -hmm. and the way in which that Davis is connecting the Phoenix Force to that trauma as what is continuing that trauma. Because we'll see, you know, Rachel starts to change over later issues precisely because of what she does here, shutting down mm -hmm. the Phoenix Force. And it starts to, in a way, quite literally put her back together, at least, you know, mentally and psychically. And so it's, it's interesting the way in which that, that Davis is. And again, I think it's something he's making his own you know, kind of the phoenix almost seems to be prolonging Rachel's trauma. Yeah, there's definitely a sense that I get from it. And I mean, I think different people will have different uh, mileage on this, but that she's sort of using it as a as a shield, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's shielding her from experiencing things authentically. She's sort of relying on the crutch of that power. And you, there's totally understandable reasons why she would be doing that, yeah. having to do with her trauma and having to do with not wanting to be taken prisoner and not wanting to be touched, not wanting to be manipulated, you know, who wouldn't want to put up a cosmic armor in the face of all of that? It makes total <laughs> sense. But I mean, it's definitely something he's deliberately doing with the character to kind of, mm -hmm. I don't want to use the word humanize because it's not that Rachel wasn't humanized already but it's certainly that he's deliberately taking it in a direction that is thoughtful and you know whether it's the direction you want it to go or not i do think that that thoughtfulness comes across i wanted to go there i my problem he's softening her which i think is important yeah, yeah. i think it's showing a lot of growth i think it is weird that she shows this growth not with kitty not with know, gene or scott yeah. or nathan with this family that she met the panel before yeah 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 that's that's <laughs> yeah. a very fair critique i think that that's mm. sort of to me one of the things that happens in davis where there is some and this is an odd critique to make since he's like writing and drawing the book but there is sometimes telling instead of showing and i think he gets away with it because the visuals are so powerful you know i mean even if i just looked at this scene with rachel and the family minus the caption boxes minus yeah. the dialogue it would still be affecting to me because i can still yes. understand what's going on here and that adds so much but there are times when he like tells you what's happening because he wants to make sure that you get it <laughs> and he and he's learning to write I mean, he's, yeah. he's learning to write and he's learning to trust his artist, which mm -hmm. I think is actually yeah. in a lot of ways harder because it's him, right? Yeah. Like he's just like, like, I think there's a self-consciousness of that he doesn't trust his artist to mm -hmm. get across that Rachel is being disarmed here. So he made an explicit statement that I think is yeah. overwriting it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, let's do some final thoughts because I know we're, we're running quickly out of time and there's so many things on this issue that we didn't touch on. So I'll give everybody a chance to highlight something that we didn't get to. I'll come to you first Mav something about this issue that we haven't got a chance to talk about that you want to make sure we mention before we leave it behind one super quick thing that I don't want to talk about at all just that I love that one of the Captain Britain Corps is Captain America um I just love that <laughs> but, but um <laughs> But, like, that's not really what I want to talk about. We'll get more opportunities, too. But Kylan is great. We we mentioned mm -hmm. it briefly. Kylan's got two pages in this book of no dialogue. It's just Kylan and Satinine straight up murdering people. Just murking. Just murking everyone <laughs> left and right. And it's delightful. It's so adorable. It's like, a, it's like oh, they're on a date. Oh. <laughs> and I, and I, I, I love it. I, I mean, I again, I didn't know who he was at this point. But because he's only shown up a couple of times. And just 
watching it going, oh, that that's that guy's intriguing. I want to know more. So, you know, they're making you wait for it, but I like it. He's he's definitely getting a huge push, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, those two pages, God, it's like we just suddenly jump into this sword and sorcery yeah. fantasy comic, which is just beautiful with the red sky mm-hmm. and just all the bodies and the swords and the motion. Just those two pages are beautiful. Uh, Andrew, something you wanted to highlight before we leave it behind. Yeah, I looked up a piece of context for the velvet scene um even though america is clearly the stronger empire in 1990 than the empire of canada <laughs> um the number one or what does it call it was the um the top single at the mtv music awards in 1990 which is one year before this issue comes out is mm-hmm. black velvet by Alana oh my god oh my god um, which means yes, that in 1999 or 1991 velvet has never been sexier so oh my god oh my god yeah it would have been i probably and i would have been aware of that (laughs) wow that's amazing andrew i thought you were gonna have something about linda and you came at me with that and that was just delightful Thank you so much for that. I mean, I I just wanted to note, you know, Brian and Bondage at the start of this issue. I just, I'd be remiss not to note it that, uh, you know, it's been sort of a theme of Brian being in Bondage in a number of Excalibur issues. I'm not mad at it. Um, Seems to be something that Davis likes to do with this character because we've talked about that, you know, Bondage and Claremont before, but, you know, continues into Davis, which I find interesting. He clearly likes drawing these types of images as well. Before Patrick says his, I just want to see, because there's one thing that no one's mentioned yet, and I want to see if this is what Patrick mentions. If not, I will do it at the very end. Okay, Patrick, what have you got for us? Final thought? Uh, Not so much a final thought, but just a a final question, because I don't know if anyone else thought this, but I realize, uh, still sticking with Kylan and Satnine, obviously Satnine's name is supposed to be, you know, a a version of Saturnine, but for me, she always looked like Kitty. She's Kitty. Well, I think she's the princess from, I think she's a version of the princess from the first Cross Time Caper story. Yeah, and so that was something I I, I always, when, when, you know, I always kind of shipped Kylan and Kitty, even though the comic never did anything with it. But yeah, that was just something, you know, in terms of me, I, I was kind of like, you know, she's got the name, but she looks more like Kitty. So there's that. And then just finally, I just want to, I just want to agree with Andrew that, that Captain UK is the best of the Captain Britain yeah. Corps. <laughs> and that's, that's, I mean, it's a pretty low bar to get over, but she, she, she does clear it by a fair margin. Well, she also seems to be aware that, that Saturnine is, is running around on Earth masquerading as Courtney Ross. And that, and that's the world she took over at one point mm-hmm. as Captain Britain for at the end of the, the Captain Britain trade paperback. So, but she is, yeah, she is the best. Aww, love that. So, uh, no one mentioned that this is the premiere, uh, issue for Micromax. Oh, well, oh, sorry, yeah. we're, sorry, we're <laughs> out of time. <laughs> I almost, I almost was going to bring that up that we did not talk about Micromax at all, but yeah, we're out of time. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> he'll be present in some future issues. Um, yeah. He'll get uh, if, a strange amount I, of I will, focus. <laughs> I will adore our show if we get through the next eighty episodes of this and never talk about Micromax. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that you've pointed it out, I feel like you've kind of ruined the bit. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> All right. Last thing I'm going to do, I'm going to do part of a letter real briefly, just because it's a cute one. So uh, in our Sword Strokes letters page this month, this is a letter from Nicholas Hood. This is just part of it. I have been a firm follower of Excalibur since it first started. Bring back the werewolves, I say, which leads to my reply to the letter in an earlier issue concerning a Kitty Pride and Ileana Rasputin fan club. Since then, I have come to an arrangement with its president, the great Emperor Emperor Spasov, and I am now his left hand. <laughs> 
Grand Man over here in England. For any readers in England and Europe, they can now join the international fan club of Soulmates. And then he has an address there for the fan club. So don't know whether that fan club's still around, but I love that it's called Soulmates. I love that it's the Kitty and Ileana fan club. And I hope if anyone was a member of it, that um, it was enjoyable. I I wish letter pages were around so you could write in and and declare yourself to Marvel, the Nightcrawler's official PR. manager i don't know if i want that responsibility i like the (laughs) one All right, let's wrap things up. Patrick, thank you ever so much for joining us. Um, I know you've wanted to come on to the pod for a while, so I'm so excited we could make it happen. But before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners about your amazing work. So where can people find you online and what work of yours should they be checking out? Remind them again. Yeah, so I am on uh, Twitter as Prof Patham, P-R-O-F-P-A-T-H-A-M, which you can probably figure out where I came up with that name from. Um <laughs> And then in terms of work, probably the thing that's most relevant to this audience is, of course, uh, the book that Alan Austin and I co-wrote, All New, All Different, A History of Race and the American Superhero from University of Texas Press, uh, available at fine book retailers everywhere. And Alan and I also do our own podcast on far-ranging topics within pop culture uh, called Even More Mashed Up, which is available on all your various podcast uh, accessible web pages, <laughs> apps, and things like that. The title doesn't make a lot of sense. We used to do a radio show called The Mashup, and then we spun the podcast off of that, and then we stopped doing the radio show. But it's basically <laughs> us just talking about whatever we feel like doing in pop culture uh, at, at the time of the taping. So uh, if, you, if you want to hear more from me and, and more from Alan, that, that's a great place to hear from us. I think we've been doing, I think we're in our sixth year of the podcast. So Congratulations. Yeah, it's not going to take us six years to make it through all of Excalibur, <laughs> unless we continue with, uh, I, I can't look that far in the future. Let's just concentrate on the present. <laughs> Um, Thank you so much, Patrick, and we will, of course, link all of those things in our show notes. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 45, Nightcrawler's Technet. It's the one with Nightcrawler's Technet. It's going to be lots of fun. (laughs) In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywild.com, where we've got some fun episodes extras and via twitter at gosh golly wow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another all new all different conversation thank you patrick for joining us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out